Hello, you're listening to Culture Call, a transatlantic conversation from the Financial Times. I'm Griselda Murray Brown in London. And I'm Lila Raptopoulos in New York. Coming up on today's episode. I think one of the appeals of, of films right now is the idea of putting ourselves into a narrative, a scripted, comforting narrative with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Most crucially, an end. Hi, Grizz. Hi, Lila. How are you? Uh, honestly, this week, every week feels different, but this week I really have been missing my colleagues. Mm. Um, maybe because Zoom calls are so awkward <laughs> and they just don't really like cut it. I can't really like gossip with my colleagues on Zoom and there's like mm. this new etiquette to learn. It's like so hard to be warm on a Zoom call with... <laughs> 15 other people and watching people laugh on mute has been like my own personal form of torture <laughs> this week. <laughs> that is so true. Um, how are you doing? Are you finding that too? Yeah, I'm yeah, I'm completely that yeah. And I'm sure like everyone who's ever been in a Zoom meeting knows exactly what you mean. <laughs> they are kind of excruciating. Actually, you know um Philippa Perry, who's this psychotherapist? Yes, we love psychotherapists. <laughs> We do love therapists on Culture Call. She tweeted recently about this, about exactly why kind of video calls are so unsatisfying and so energy sapping mm. as well. Like there's something quite exhausting about them. Really? Yeah, you come off and you feel like you want to just lie down on the floor. <laughs> and she was saying that um, it's something about the fact people's words and their gestures are not simultaneous because there's like even just a slight delay. So in your brain, you have to notice the words in the body language in two different streams and this takes an energy that we don't normally have to apply to just everyday conversations. Mm, that makes sense. I mean, I used to like working from home um, because it was a fun treat. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much anymore. <laughs> yeah, I know. Remember back when working from home was just a quiet way to get a bunch of work done? <laughs> yeah. I was told actually that um, even gossiping at work, that sort of downtime of just like talking to a colleague, even a colleague that you find annoying, serves an important calming function. It like actually relaxes your body when it's in person. Yeah. And so, yeah, that what Philippa Perry was saying about the process of doing that online, having that delay, it really, it's a different story. Yeah, completely. Just going and making a cup of tea in the like work kitchen and you just don't know who you're going to bump into and you'll have like a five minute random conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, that's like a little release valve and it's it's basically impossible to replicate that, I think. Yeah, for sure. These are the sorts of things that as the weeks go on, start to feel like they're setting in, in stone or into some sort of a routine. Like, mm. you know, we've been in lockdown now for, I don't know, between five and nine weeks, depending on where you are. And there feels like this distinct before and after now. Mm -hmm. So we've decided to use this episode to take stock. It feels like the real world has shifted almost wholesale from IRL to URL, which is our cute new way of saying it. I see what you did there. You like it? I did not. I did not come up with that. Um, listeners have sent that into us. And I feel like a real old lady <laughs> saying it. Um, anyway, so we're going to take stock of how cultural things like music and art and theater have adapted to this shift. Yeah, so today we're going to be breaking away from our usual format to talk about all of these things to each other, of course, and also to some of our FT colleagues in the UK and in the US. First up is our film critic, Danny Lee, 
who is back by popular demand. <laughs> uh, some of you might remember Danny from the episode we did on Noah Baumbach, the film director, and on the Oscars back in February. So we're going to ask Danny which films we should be watching under lockdown. Mm-hmm. And then in the second part of the show, Lila, you and I will be discussing what culture we've been consuming, what's working online and what's not working. And we'll be putting those things under the culture called microscope, as it were. (laughs) And finally, um, because we miss our colleagues, we've asked a few of them to send us audio notes about what they've been up to since we last saw them. And they're very funny. (laughs) They're just a delight. Before we get into that, we just want to say a massive thank you for what you've all emailed us. One listener, Alexandra Marilla, wrote to us on Instagram to say that she's just discovered our back catalog of interviews and they've been keeping her company during her long walks. Yeah, I love the idea that um, we're keeping someone company on their walks (laughs) in a non-creepy way. (laughs) And we wanted to also say thank you for um, everyone's Apple reviews. You know that we ask for them every week and we do that because they really do help people find the show who don't already know about mm-hmm. it. And the ones that we've got recently have been almost embarrassingly nice. Someone even said that they listen with a pen and paper in hand to make notes, <laughs> which is really nice. Oh my God, it's so nice. You know, one thing we don't do a lot of on this show and maybe enough about is talk about um, how great the FT's journalism is and how we have these like really brilliant, impressive colleagues who are working in like pretty difficult circumstances right now to produce um, really excellent reporting. Mm. So we're excited to be able to give you a link today um, as a gift (laughs) that will give you uh, as listeners free access to our content so that you can have a better idea of what the FT is like and what we do. Um, Some listeners are like major FT fans and you'll already know all of the people that we're talking about and the, and, the, and the things that we're talking about when we reference the FT. Other people who are listening may be surprised that the FT even has culture because it's called the Financial Times. But actually, the stuff that we do in the podcast of sort of like putting cultural things in a bigger perspective or, or taking a person and interviewing them and broadening it out, the things that people say that they like about the podcast, that, that's what the FT does, mm. I think, in all of its reporting. Yeah, and I think the other thing that people, well, that I certainly want right now from news is it is for it to be trustworthy, right? At the most basic level, um, you want to trust the quality of what you're reading. And, you know, mm. working as an editor at the FT, something that people who write for us as freelancers often say is that you guys still fact check um, and not everywhere does <laughs> yeah. fact checking anymore. And, you know, that's very basic. That's not the best of what we do. But I think it's just a marker of the fact that when you read the FT, you can believe what you're reading and you know that you're reading good stuff, you know? Yeah. And it's like so global. <laughs> I know everybody says that, but like I just it takes like every part of the world as seriously as other parts of the world. And especially coming from America, that feels really unique. So we have a link to a newsletter about coronavirus called the Coronavirus Business Update, which is like very good and very succinct. And it focuses on the economic impact of the virus. It's a couple times a week, but really it encompasses everything. The other nice thing about access to the newsletter is to allow you to click the links in it, it also comes with 30 free days of access to our content. So you can explore the site and everything it comes with. And all you really need is your email address. So here's how you get there. You can sign up at speciallinkft.com slash culture call COVID, which is quite catchy, I think. <laughs> yes, yeah, sadly. We'll put that in our show notes.
Danny Lee is the FT's film critic, as well as being a friend of this podcast. And he's someone whose opinion I really rate, um, which actually isn't true of all critics by any means. But Danny has always got some really great recommendations, both for new films that are coming out right now, but also for kind of old films that you might not have come across. I feel like Danny's very good at coming up with left field things that we may have missed and then making this amazing case for it so that when you watch it, you end up partially loving it because he told you how much he loved it and you can see all those things in the thing while you're watching. Um, His enthusiasm is truly contagious. Mm. Actually, last time he almost got me to watch The Irishman. Oh my God, don't do it. (laughs) Yeah, I couldn't. It's just not for me. Lila, you will never get those hours back again. We're going to get a lot of angry emails for that. (laughs) Anyway, um... We decided to check in with Danny a couple of weeks ago to see how he's doing and ask him what he's been watching and what we should be watching. And also ask him what lockdown might mean for the way that we watch and make movies in the future. Um, He doesn't have a crystal ball, but he knows a lot about the industry. So it was fascinating. Danny, thank you so much for joining us. Grizz, it's an absolute pleasure. Here we are in this strange new world. How has your job changed in the last few weeks? A lot, I I imagine. You know, it usually involves going to a screening room with lots of other critics and seeing a new film and then writing a review of that film. Well, like a lot of people, I imagine. I mean, it's changed and not changed at the same time. Obviously, clearly, I'm I'm grateful to still have one. Um, Mm. But the mechanics of what I'm doing now aren't so different. I'm not physically in a cinema, but actually a lot of what we were doing uh, as critics, I mean, I don't know how people, how aware people were of this. You know, we'd been Netflixed, if, if that can become a verb, a little bit anyway. <laughs> um, and we were getting secure links for films a lot of the time anyway. And so everything has just shifted to that. It's like a hacker's dream. <laughs> it's an absolute hacker's dream. But no, in a strange kind of way. I mean, the films themselves, the kind of films that, that I'm seeing and writing about now have changed a little bit in as much as, you know, that layer of sort of cinema-centric movies, you know, the, the the big blockbusters, the superhero movies, those are all in limbo now. So those things are just not being released or...? They've kind of disappeared from the release schedule. I mean, mm. there was this mass kind of mothballing um, of the entire movie release schedule. Uh, and then what it left was the films which were probably going to have more of a life as, as streaming events anyway. You know, they've taken on this prominence. So, yeah, everything's different and everything's the same. Danny, do you think that this is going to make a permanent change in how movies are seen and released? I think that when we are on the other side of this, there will be this enormous release of kind of pent up hunger for cinema, you know, and I think there will be this enormous rebound. I think people will pack the cinemas out. What's interesting is how long that's going to last, Um, because I think clearly something was already well underway, which was transforming all of our viewing habits. And I wonder if, you know, if this is where we are at for, I don't know, six months longer, that habit is going to prove very hard to shake off long term. Yeah. It will just entrench that idea that, you know, you do this thing at home. Right. So I want to ask you for some recommendations. Um, Grizz and I are finding that our attention span is a little bit lower. It's harder for us to to watch some of our old comforting favorites. But I'm curious, like, what you're more drawn to watching right now. Of course, you have to be watching new releases, but are you more drawn to them or are you rewatching old favorites? Like, help us out. I'm rewatching old favorites. I mean, everybody is going to be in a very different situation in terms of who they are around at the moment, if they're around anyone, if they're going to be on right. their own, if they're going to be with friends, partners, flatmates. 
you know, I've got a, a sort of a, you know a small but much loved family, um, including a fourteen year old son. So I've taken the moment as this is the this is the time to force a lot of sort of great films down down his consciousness. Um, <laughs> How's that going, Danny? <laughs> it's going all right. I mean, you know, he's you know he doesn't seem resentful. He seems to be enjoying himself. I mean, it, it's quite strange. I mean, without planning it that way, there's a sort of a thread to the things that I've picked out. They're not particularly sunshiny movies they're not feel good yeah what are the films so well marathon man was the first thing so my son um knew the quote he knew about a, a dentist scene and he knew the line is it safe um but he'd never seen the film itself um <laughs> and then we did something similar with the long good friday the great london crime movie um and then we had kind hearts and coronets um then we had fargo so it feels like there's something going on there in terms of in terms of the thread mm. they're sort of dark in a very specific way which is it's it's you know the, the wickedness that men do and i suppose it's it's crime thrillers that i've been watching a lot of and i i, I was trying to puzzle out you know what the psychology might be and I think it's it's the idea I think of fate being in our own hands they're all stories about plots and schemes and people being you know or at least feeling like they're in control of their destiny whereas at the moment obviously that you know what we're all feeling is an absolute lack of control over any of yeah, our destinies yeah, you know um, and, and we're all aware of the sort of you know the smallness of mankind's little schemes mm. you know and I think one of the appeals of, of films right now um, is the idea of putting ourselves into a narrative, a scripted, comforting narrative with a beginning, a middle and an end, most crucially an end. That's in, that's intensely mm. reassuring at the moment. Danny, I have two questions for you. Um, you know, people are trawling through their Netflix right now and Amazon and Apple Plus and whatever. I don't want to give them more press. But, <laughs> um, basically, we're all looking for something to watch to get our minds off of things. And I'm wondering if there's anything that's recently been released that you could recommend or if there's anything that's about to be released off the normal schedule that we should be looking out for. Um, well, I just reviewed a film called The Perfect Candidate, actually, which is just this quite little sort of modest movie um, in terms mm. of scale from Saudi Arabia, which is about a woman doctor standing uh, for political office. And it has the sense when you're kind of, you know, coming to the movie that it might be something which has a bit of sort of stodge and worthiness to it. And in fact, anything but, you know, it's 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 made with real agility, you know, and lightness mm. of touch uh, and levity. There was a Georgian movie as well called And Then We Danced. It's a kind of gay romance. It, it will remind people of Call Me By Your Name, I think, a little bit. But again, I just found for me sitting here in London in the midst of everything that's happening at the moment, um, it, it felt very lived and it just did that very precious thing at the moment, which is it took me somewhere else. Mm, yeah. I don't know. I'm not saying that sort of everybody's standards are dropping, but I mean, I think we're probably looking for different things at the moment from from, from films. And when I'm writing about films, I'm, I'm kind of aware of that as well. And there are, there are movies in the same way that there are lots of films now that are probably more prominent and actually reaching more, more an audience than they would have done six weeks ago. Um, I think we're also, you know, we, the audience, are then looking at those films in turn through a slightly different gaze. Yeah, I think that's interesting because the film has to be good enough to take you out of your headspace. I found, for example, I've tried watching like complete trash and actually it hasn't really worked because it's kind of like not good enough to transport me out of the anxiety of now. You know, but mm. the, the films you just recommended, they sound like they're quite meaty and good and serious in a way. And and maybe we what we need is somewhere that's like a balance. You know, we don't want to watch Contagion, but also we don't want to watch a completely vapid rom-com that's about nothing because that's not really very effective distraction. 
Well, it's a magic trick. I mean, cinema is a magic trick, and it's all about the, it's all about the quality of suspension of disbelief. And I think you know, I mean, everybody's got a slightly different tolerance for bad filmmaking. What what will be seen as trash to one person is is another person's jewel. Mm. Um, I find it very. I mean, the reason I don't get along with a lot of kind of what would be seen as trashy filmmaking in the first place is simply because it, on a selfish level, it doesn't trigger my suspension of disbelief. You know, so as soon as I'm aware of the set and the bad acting, you know, and the people in fleeces, mm. you know, sort of standing there <laughs> sipping Starbucks you know, just out of frame. It kind of wrecks it for me. So it's just a very selfish impulse. I mean, you know, the stuff that I've shown my son and forced my son to watch, I mean, hopefully he's actually kind of loved it. It's not been a question. It's not been this sort of curriculum. And I don't think people should feel obliged right now. If they want to go and rediscover Tarkovsky at this moment, that's fantastic. But I don't think people feel, should feel like, you know, they have to spend the next six months watching... Bella Tarr and, you know, kind of familiarising themselves with, <laughs> yeah. with, with Hungarian art house. Thank you for giving us that permission. <laughs> we were hoping you were going to say that. <laughs> if people listen, Satan Tango is great. You know, it's a very, it's a great long movie. And there's also something to be said at the moment for long films. Um, <laughs> what I want at the moment is something which drags me into its world, you know, um, however that's achieved so that I'm not sitting there just checking you know, with all due deference to our beloved employers, the FT website every 10 minutes to check <laughs> to check the latest statistics. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear you say that you are writing your reviews with this additional lens of what people may be needing at this time. And it also makes me think about how there is this idea out there that uh, after a plague, there's a renaissance or after a crisis, all, all art is affected. Right. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. I think that film is going to be, it's going to be weirdly fascinating um, and possibly not always very pretty seeing mm. the ripple effect on film because I think film is vulnerable in, in certain specific ways. And one of the ways it's vulnerable is that, you know, the, you know although we were talking earlier about the triumph of Netflix, you know, and the move away from the cinema as a kind of collective mass auditorium. I still think movies relied on, you know, or, or, or I would say actually the best movies relied on and played with the sense of a mass audience and the fact that they were going to be playing to hmm. large crowds of people. Um, and yeah. I think if that does fall away, I think that uh, something very intrinsic to, to, to the magic of cinema will will go with it and to the magic of movies. I mean, you know, f films will become smaller without wanting to go all Sunset Boulevard about it. I mean, you know, and I think mm. and I think if, if that takes hold in the way I think it might, a certain kind of film will pass into history like the blockbusters not even necessarily the blockbusters because i think there will be a way i mean the blockbusters are um unkillable i think i think there will be a way that they will they will reassert themselves because there's too they're too big to fail um i think you know what was left of the middle ground beneath or below in in financial terms you know the avengers uh, and anything above, you know, half a million pound kind of chamber pieces, you know, with, with three actors sitting in a room. I think all of that stuff is imperiled. I think film is not uniquely endangered, but it's certainly, you know, it's among the most endangered art forms simply because of the overheads that it, that it depends on. Um, I don't know where the money's going to come from. Mm. In 10 years' time, am I going to be writing about the same experience that I've spent the last more than 20 years writing about absolutely not i don't and that's for that's for a whole series of reasons but i think this is very much i think this may be the full stop on a certain kind of of cinema as a mass 
shared yeah. experience you know I, mm. I, I, I don't know how much longer that's got you know and certainly there will be, there'll, there'll be all this weird practical stuff like I mean at the moment there's this kind of pipeline of stuff which is coming through so people are watching new releases nothing is being made now so actually I mean depending on how long we are all in our houses for um, there will come a point where we come out where there's nothing new for us to see yeah well yeah I mean I'm interested, in Danny, in what what happens when people do start making work again, and we do start seeing films that are being made after this moment, and and whether this moment will be kind of reflected in those. Like, do you think that we'll get lots of apocalyptic films or like very kind of patriotic films? Do you think there'll be a kind of reaction to now? I think there'll have to be. I mean, certainly, the mind boggles at the amount of kind of coronavirus fiction that's going to be generated out of all of this. Oh, God. (laughs) I mean, the only reference that we have, the only reference that any of us have, and I don't know how reliable it is, is... 1945, straight after the war. And, you know, yeah, you had two things going on at once. Um, one of them was this sort of, you know, this bold march forward, you know, and it it was it was getting away from everything which had dominated people's lives for the, for the previous half decade. But still, for the rest of the 40s, there are also, and, you know, and beyond, there are a lot of wartime stories. Um, and I think that is, it's that's the interesting thing that I think film yeah. does. All art does this, but I think film is uniquely placed to do it, which is a space for a mass psychological processing for people to just deal with collectively as a species what has been going on i mean that's that's Mm. one of the things that always fascinates me about movies is the idea Mm. that it's it's our it's bubbling up to the surface you know and it's all the it's all the it's the dream life you know coming back up to the surface and that's what that's what manifests on screen the psychic detritus of all of this is going to be vast and i think that's my i suppose it sounds a bit trite to call it a silver lining, but I do think what might be the salvation for movies is the idea that that cinema is perfectly placed to do that. Cinema is the place where we all process what what we've lived through. Um, should we end on the note of psychic detritus? <laughs> yes, let's do, let's do that. I'd like to end on the note of psychic detritus. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. No worries. See you both soon. Well, talk to you soon. Bye. Well... That was a pleasure, as always. Mm. <laughs> I am so curious to see what happens in a few months' time when streaming platforms run out of content. That's so fascinating. Mm. Um, so I haven't seen any great movies recently, Grizz, but film and TV seem to be like completely blurring into one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, what is the difference anymore, anyway? I think Danny would have some thoughts about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. We'll ask him next time. <laughs> Another episode. Um, I feel like maybe this is the place where we talk about how much we have been loving normal people. Oh, my God. Yes, it is so good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Normal people is the uh, there's a TV adaptation to Sally Rooney's novel. Grizz, you interviewed Sally Rooney. Yeah, a few years ago now. Yeah. Yeah, we should put the link in the show notes. So she wrote these two books, Conversations with Friends and Normal People. And um, I only recently just like finished Normal People in a day just so that I could then binge the series mm. and whoa <laughs> that, that is a con- intense way to go about it <laughs> <laughs> I had about an 18th month break between the book and, and the series but I mean isn't it such a relief that they didn't mangle the adaptation I mean I'm always so worried when I've loved a book that the tv version is going to be dreadful but it's really not it's really good yeah it was like a word for word of the book it mm. was like the book was a script well, Sally Rooney's been involved um, in the adaptation quite heavily, so 
it's got her fingerprints on it for sure. It was a weird one to read and watch in quarantine because like it's about this couple who sort of like have power over each other mm. and um, different kinds of power over each other and their relationship over time. It showed the best and worst of young relationships and being in high school and being a kid. And uh, and also it made me like never want to date again. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I remember um, that I spoke to Sally Rooney about is the way that the power dynamic between her two protagonists, this young man and young woman, kind of shifts over time. So they have different kinds of power at different mm. points in their relationship. Um, and that is handled so deftly, I think. And I think the TV series yeah. really brings that out as well. Yeah, it's so like emotionally in tune in a way that feels sort of eerie. Her protagonists are like real people that exist in my life. I feel like I know them. Yeah, you know, I don't think I've ever met anybody like them because they're so Irish. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't really know Irish culture very well, but um, but they just like hit this familiar emotional place, both of them, mm. in a way that like a lot of stuff doesn't. Yeah, for me, they felt a, a little bit um, too like people I do actually know or knew at university. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> it's a milieu that I'm kind of familiar with. Um, so it's out on iPlayer in the UK. You can binge all 12 episodes right now, and I advise mm -hmm. that you do that immediately. <laughs> um, the consensus is that it's excellent. All the reviews I've seen and people on Twitter and everything are loving it. Yeah, I mean, the internet's loving it, but we're also loving it, and we don't love everything that the internet loves. <laughs> that, that's and so true. You should trust us. If you don't trust the internet, you can trust us. These like two young actors who I've never seen in anything before, they're both really good and the soundtrack's really good and it's shot really beautifully and it's like kind of sexy and it just will take you out of your apartment or house that you've been looking at the same walls of for the past, you know, six weeks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's extremely sexy. It's more than kind of sexy, I would say. <laughs> yeah, I was not expecting the number of sex scenes in the first two episodes that I received. <laughs> um, as Grizz said, it's out on the BBC. It also was just released on Hulu in the US. So um, enjoy and let us know what you think. So that leads us in nicely to something that we've been really wanting to talk about on the podcast for quite a few weeks, um, I guess actually since the lockdown started, which is the question of culture and how we consume it now that we can't go anywhere. Yeah. Um, but we decided to wait until now to discuss it because we really wanted to see how things would adapt and also mm -hmm. which new cultural forms might spring up. So what we're going to be exploring is... Um, you know, which cultural experiences are working well online and which ones aren't? What's been surprisingly good? And actually, what do we miss because it's just not the same? Yeah, it's such a challenging time for culture. I mean, even looking at the FT Grizz, you know this best, like so much of our arts coverage has had to shift considerably, you know, arts, travel, restaurant, theater. Lila, I mean, so much of my commissioning down the drain. <laughs> I mean, Yeah. And it, it just it just spotlights how much in the arts is about being somewhere, you know, going to places, mm. seeing an exhibition, going to a restaurant, going to a gig or a bar or a comedy show or a lecture. And with all that gone, you know, like everything else, it's all of our cultural experiences and our jobs and our friendships and our educations and our everything has moved <laughs> online. Um, and then in the meantime, our physical lives have gotten so much smaller and more repetitive. And, you know, we're seeing the same rooms in our homes. We're taking the same walks. Uh, <laughs> we're looking at the same laptop screen and seeing the same people on those laptop screens. 
<laughs> when you put it like that. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Grizz. No, I love seeing you on my laptop screen. But it does, you know, it feels like Groundhog Day and there's little definition uh, the mm. way there used to be between like, oh, I went to that show and that really um, created sort of like a mark in this week or um, I went yeah. to that restaurant and that's why I remember that time that I, you know, that sort of thing isn't happening. So it kind of makes anything that triggers our brains to think differently or be stimulated that much more welcomed. Definitely. There was this Guardian article about what we're watching and listening to culturally that framed it in a way that I liked, that we are living out of the cultural store cupboard. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. Is, that. is that true for you, do you think? It's true for me in some places, in books and in music. Um, in music, hmm. I'm listening to a lot of like Sam Cooke and Ani DeFranco, <laughs> <laughs> just comforting stuff. Mm. Um, and you know what really... Uh, was like the perfect thing that combined new and old um, in a stimulating way for me is Fiona Apple just came out with an album called Fetch the Bolt Cutters. Yes, I haven't heard it yet. It's so good. It's her first album in eight years and we've all been waiting. (laughs) I spread like strawberries I climb like peas and beans I've been sucking it in so long But I'm busting it it's just really perfect for now because it's both old and recognizable and comforting and also new and interesting and Mm. I can't stop listening to it. Oh, thank you for that recommendation. I'm definitely going to have a listen. Yeah, I recommend it. Grizz, what do you think has worked the least well online? Hmm, I mean, I guess personally the thing that I miss most is going to exhibitions Um, Mm. because I think you know, so far at least, they're the thing that works the least well. You know, I think it's really yeah. hard to sort of lose yourself in a work of art when you're kind of peering at it on a laptop screen. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's just not the same. And, you know, you know, things that, are, that call themselves online exhibitions are often really just slideshows of JPEGs. Um, it's pretty kind of lo-fi. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know... I guess this means that the technology is under quite a lot of pressure to improve um, and that can only be a good thing. Like I think Mm -hmm. this will probably change quite fast in the next few months. At least I hope it does. Actually, there is one thing which is really amazing right now, which you can go to immediately, which is the Sistine Chapel. Um, You may have heard of it. (laughs) It's online. What's that? Sounds obscure. (laughs) (laughs) And it's quite cool because um, it's like a 3D... Uh, immersive experience like I don't they filmed it on some kind of 3D camera which is very good and you know in the real Sistine Chapel you're like elbowing people out of the way but in this you're the only person there and you can just stare up at the ceiling and it's great Um, that's nice and you have climate control of your own home (laughs) yes I mean it's actually probably better than the real thing I shouldn't say that Um, (laughs) (laughs) but I would I don't know I mean I've personally found up until this point um that the best way to visit exhibitions is through TV. Um, The BBC have just started this series called Museums in Quarantine, which I think is really nice. Um, It's basically like a series of um, art historians and critics going into different exhibitions right now. So at the point where they're closed to the public and we can't go there. Mm -hmm. And I've seen one episode so far, which is a critic called Alistair Souk, who goes to the big Andy Warhol exhibition at Tate Modern. Mm -hmm. Um, And this literally opened just before um, the lockdown started. So, you know, I haven't seen it. I think most people haven't seen it. 
And actually, there's something that's quite um, fitting about seeing Warhol's art in this really big, echoey space. It kind of accentuates this cold, deadpan quality that that he has, mm. and it makes it quite eerie. It's, it's actually really good. That sounds awesome. I, you know, one of the things I struggle with when going to exhibitions is I just wish I had somebody with me who could like give me the background better than an audio mm. guide. <laughs> and so like this is a nice opportunity to get to know the stories behind um behind the art that you're seeing, which sometimes in a in a museum or gallery you you don't get from the blurbs on the side of the yeah. wall. No, that's so true. And this is and you know it's very like accessible. These are half an hour episodes, I think. And yeah, there are no crowds. You've got a nice guide with you. It's perfect. Yeah, it sounds amazing. And you can drink. <laughs> In seriousness, um, that was serious, but in seriousness, one really cool thing about this time has been the accessibility of culture. Like, mm. there's this availability of things that were extremely expensive before and now are online for free, like the Met Opera or the English National Ballet. Yeah. And you can also stop into things that otherwise felt closed or intimidating, like, I don't know, like a gallery is meant to make you uncomfortable it's sort of like built to make you not sure how to walk in and whether you can ask about the art and that sort of thing now you know you can just mm. sort of drop in and not have to be seen in that way or you know going to a nightclub or a dance class or a workout class um you can just sort of attend anonymously in a nice way yeah that's so true and just see what it's like so that maybe when the doors open again um you now feel like you belong there mm. um and then there's also the chance for people who are time or resource poor, like parents, uh, who may need a babysitter to attend things, who can now go, which is great. Mm. My sister is really enjoying that, as is our producer, Lena. And then there's also people who don't live in major cities who, like, never had access to a lot of these things that are now online. And I just, that's a nice silver lining. Yeah, completely. And it's interesting because, like, one of the really big challenges for these kind of cultural institutions recently has been like how do they attract a wider audience mm, that's interesting in the uk at least the, the funding that they get from the government is often actually dependent on them being able to prove that mm. you know we don't have the data yet that shows like where the audiences are diversifying but it'll be really interesting to see whether the lockdown has actually kind of accelerated that whole movement though of course overall you know they're losing money because of not having ticket sales which mm. i guess will probably impact their outreach programs in the future so that's not good but you know on balance i do feel like actually this is a time of potentially quite radical change and that's exciting yeah um grizz what have you personally been consuming culturally i know you were like on a real theater binge earlier this year and that's gone so so what are you feeling that with I know, I'm quite glad I did that theatre binge, actually, because um, little did I know, but, you know, <laughs> I <laughs> yeah. can't do that now. Um, no right. one can. Um, yeah, I mean, I do I do miss going to the theatre in the same way that I miss going to the cinema or going to gigs or festivals. Mm -hmm. I actually had tickets for Glastonbury this year, which, um, <laughs> thinking about it, probably I wouldn't have gone because I would be eight months pregnant by then. <laughs> but I don't know, you know, there's nothing that's quite like being part of a crowd of strangers, you know, all of whom are experiencing the same thing. Oh, totally. I think that's so special and that's something that you just, you know, you just can't replicate that. Lots of the emails that we've had from listeners are about exactly this. You know, they're feeling the same thing. Um, they're missing real life culture. But, you know, I think the good thing is actually lots of theatre was being recorded 
pre-coronavirus to stream live to cinemas and online. So now we have a bank of all those recordings. Um, and I think in that way, you know, things like theatre and opera and ballet are actually faring better than exhibitions because they'd already had to sort of figure out how to make it work. So here we've got the National Theatre, which is streaming a different production each week. Um, and people kind of tune in on Thursday evenings and it's quite, you know, it's quite an event. Like people are having interval drinks That's with their so friends cool. on Zoom, um, which is oh kind of God, fun. Yeah, go. and they've very much gone for the kind of big hitters, like the, the productions that were really successful. Like there was One Man, mm -hmm. Two Governors with James Corden. Um, there was Twelfth Night with <laughs> Tamsin Gregg, who, which is an amazing one, actually. I would really recommend that. Mm. Um, but the play that I actually kind of want to recommend that people might not have come across is one called Cypress Avenue, which was at the Royal Court Theatre in London um, a few months ago, I think. And it stars an actor called Stephen Ray, an Irish actor who I really love. Um, he is playing this Protestant man from East Belfast who's who's basically grappling with um, identity and specifically Irishness, how you define Irishness. And he's doing that with his young black female therapist whose family are originally from Nigeria. So it's it's definitely about these quite weighty subjects um, like prejudice and mental health, but it's also really very darkly funny. Um, I mm. laughed out loud a lot and <laughs> it really helps having the audience there because it was recorded with an audience in situ. You can see them yeah. and you can see their reactions and you can hear them laughing. Ooh. It feels a lot more like being in the theatre than I thought it would, even when you're watching it on a laptop as I was. Um I do have one word of warning, however, which is that uh, this play takes an extremely dark turn towards the end. And because of that, I probably wouldn't recommend it for everybody. But if you feel like you could do with some gallows humour right now, um, I would give it a go. <laughs> it worked for me anyway. Awesome. You know what's really been working for me, Grizz, is um, I love what I've seen of dance culture online, like dance culture mm. for the masses. <laughs> My friend Diana was a professional dancer and she's really struggling because performances are gone, you know, yeah. and she doesn't know when they'll be back and the whole schedule is messed up for the rest of the year and going mm. forward. And that's really hard for them. And you kind of can't get together with other dancers. It's tough to suddenly be quite solitary. Yeah. Um, but for, for us, uh, I feel like I have access to dancers in a way that I didn't. And I'm grateful for it because dancers are so aware of their own bodies. Like mm. they know how to be in their bodies. Um, there was this New York Times article about how this pandemic has reminded us how bad we non-dancers are at spatial awareness. <laughs> like when we pass each other on the street or in the park, like we're not conscious of what six feet is and we're getting mm. in each other's ways. And it's like very upsetting. Um, but we've been so outside of our bodies for so long. Like I even think about my daily walk to the subway before all of this happened and how I was just emailing, like responding to emails on my mm. walk. I wasn't even there. And so I like this opportunity to like be more in my body and be told how to. Um, mm. I just tried something called Dance Church, which is incredible. It's <laughs> three proper professional dancers dancing in this weird empty studio somewhere. <laughs> I think they're in Portland uh, and they're dancing to all the hits and it's very <laughs> unpretentious. And I sweat so much with 4,000 other people and it was perfect. So it's like you dance and you watch it at the same time. Yeah, so yeah. you watch it and I sort of lead you in this okay. like, it feels like things are just occurring to them, but really it's quite structured <laughs> what they're doing. Mm. And they have you do something together as a workout and and then they have you just dance. And um, mostly it's 
a way to dance more than a way to um, exercise. But then, of course, you're exercising. That sounds great. Yeah, it was just so welcoming and weird. And it doesn't matter how you dance. And um, yeah, it, it's live streamed uh, Wednesday and Sunday. And that's it. So you should follow them on Instagram. I'll post a mm. link. But the way that a Vanity Fair article described it was a live stream capturing three dancers and a mutually quarantined state of therapeutic release. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And that's that. what it is. Yeah. Mm. And like just what an interesting time to make dance accessible, you know, to learn from dancers when it can feel like an electric charge or a way to be in tune with yourself. So that's what I recommend. Lila, did I ever tell you that um, the FT once sent me to have... <laughs> This is probably the coolest assignment I, I will ever have from the FT. Um, <laughs> but they did once send me to have a ballet class with um, a professional dancer called Adam Cooper, who oh, is the guy who wow. plays the grown-up Billy in Billy Elliot. Um, and then I had to write about the experience. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. It was one of the most. It, it was one of the most fun, but also one of the most excruciating hours of my life. Um, Why? At one point, he. Um, he was showing me how to sort of do this move where he picked me up. Um, I managed to <laughs> kick him in a place that hurt him a lot. <laughs> and he dropped me on the floor. <laughs> it was a disaster. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, please, please give us that article. <laughs> okay, well, I can put it in the show notes. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, but anyway, um, back to what we were talking about before that digression. <laughs> um, it's interesting to see, you know, such a range of responses from listeners in our inbox. Yeah. Both people finding positives in the current moment, but also negatives. Violet Conroy wrote in to say that she sees this time as kind of a dystopian vision of how altered our lives could become thanks to technology. Mm -hmm. Why would we ever do things in person when pretty much all of it is possible via a screen? Which sounds very kind of Black Mirror. <laughs> yeah. Did you see that tweet that said, um, this episode of Black Mirror sucks? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see that, but it's so true. <laughs> so true. It's a very long episode and we'd like it to be over, <laughs> so please. so long. <laughs> the thing is, though, I don't think either of us would ever argue that online culture can be a like-for-like -like substitution for live culture. Mm, yeah. But I think what we're seeing is that there's real value in both. Um, and no doubt we'll return to this subject on the podcast as things develop. Yeah. Smells like the start of a running theme for us. <laughs> we talked in the beginning of the episode about how much we missed our colleagues. Mm. So often we talk to them about cultural things that are happening in preparation for our episode and throw ideas at them and all that. And because we haven't been able to do that in the same way, we have asked them to send us what they've been thinking about and doing in this time, um, as well as what they'd recommend. Yes, um, they're quite funny. <laughs> they are an eclectic bunch. I'm Mamta Bakker. I head the FT's breaking news team in the U.S., this may seem a bit counterintuitive, but I've actually taken comfort in re-watching medical disaster movies during the lockdown. It started with Contagion, and from there I went down the rabbit hole. I think part of the reason I returned to these movies is because, spoiler alert, most of them have an uplifting end, where they find a vaccine or a cure, and they remind you that you will see the other side of this. Hi, I'm Horatia Harrod, and I'm an associate editor on the FD Weekend's Life and Art section. The thing I am doing to get through lockdown is 
reading for the first time George Eliot's Middlemarch. I've had a universally negative reaction from people when I've told them this is what I'm doing, and I've been widely accused of cultural one-upmanship. But I am persisting, despite the haters, because I'm finding reading it is incredibly comforting. I think it's mostly because of George Eliot's voice, which is so sane, calm, and ironic. And of course, she wields total control. So I would heartily recommend it to anyone. 880 pages of pure escapism. Hi, my name is Oluwakemi Aladisui, and I am an audio producer at the Financial Times. Something that I feel really works online are algorithms. Honestly, I feel like the algorithm has brought me so much joy in surfacing memes and TikToks that I would have never found on my own. But this collection of data just can pop up the most timely and bizarro things. And I'm so appreciative of that. But at the same time, as soon as algorithms step offline, so to speak, and you're thinking about the real-life implications of them, then they carry so much more weight when you think about things like policing and surveillance and privacy. Hi, I'm Joe Ellison. I'm the editor of How to Spend It. I've been watching a lot of Merchant Ivory films um, from the 80s. I've watched Morris and Room with a View, Howard's End. I'm introducing my teenage daughter to them because she's feeling quite moony and romantic. And I think that sort of late Edwardian, floppy-haired melancholy is sort of hitting the right note right now. And I can't bear anything on Netflix because it's so incredibly boring. And I've been ironing, which is something I haven't done for about 20 years. Hi. I'm Leke Osawalabi, and I'm a reporter at the FT. One thing I've been doing in the past few weeks is listening to audiobooks. I find that it's a great way of maximising your time. I'd like to recommend the biography of Leonardo da Vinci by Walter Isaacson, as it demonstrates that even the world's greatest minds were plagued by fear and self-doubt. I'm India Ross and I'm a tech editor at the FT and one thing I've been doing a lot over the past few weeks is online shopping. There's just something about being stuck at home with nothing to do and just looking around your house and thinking I could improve this. So I have been buying plants, pictures, techie accessories and it's giving me a shameful amount of joy but it's good for the economy so there you go. Hello everyone, I'm Raphael Abraham, I'm the Deputy Arts Editor of the FT and um, I would say the thing that's keeping me going, I'm not sure about sane, through this lockdown is playing the drums. So I would say if you've ever had a secret hankering to play the drums, get yourself a kit, I came to it late myself. It's really therapeutic just to beat the hell out of something and escape into a magical musical realm. So um, that's what I reckon. it for this week. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the IRL versus URL culture conversation that we've just been having. What's working for you and what's not working? You can email the show at culturecall at ft.com and those go directly to Lila and me. You can also continue the conversation with us on Twitter. We're at ft. 
Call. And we're also on Instagram. I'm Griselda Murray-Brown and Lila is Lila Rapp. Thank you for sharing the podcast with your friends. As we've said before, it's the most helpful way that you can support the show, and we're really grateful. Um, You can post on your Instagram stories and tag us. We love that. You can also help us out by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It's one of the main ways that new listeners discover us. So thank you. We'll both be back in two weeks' time. We've been Lila Raptopoulos and Griselda Murray-Brown. Culture Call is produced by Lena Prestwood. And our music is composed by Fatum and Tristan Cassell-Delavoie. And then it also works because you're saying that and then you're throwing it over to me and then I'm saying something and then I'm throwing it back to you and it's kind of... Yeah. yeah. I think that's good. With another little theory. It's, it's called a conversation, mm-hmm. Griselda. <laughs> <laughs> it's called a conversation, Griselda. <laughs> imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.